Okay, guys, we're in uh, lesson 14. We're going to look at the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, this is going to take a few lessons so uh, because it's a, a, a big section. So we're going to look at verses 8 of chapter 6 through verse 16 of chapter 7. Then uh, we're going to finish up next week in chapter 7. So it takes up a chapter and a half, and then one chapter is 60 verses long. Okay, so there's a lot of information here, and it's going to give us some perspective of how God works, why God does things, uh, in order to see how he brings about his purposes, okay? So there's some things that we can learn from this that we're going to see today. So we're in chapter 6. First of all, let's look at verses 8 through 15. And we're going to see the arrest of Stephen. So I want you to remember who Stephen is. Stephen is one of the men who was selected to distribute food to the Hellenistic, to the widows, especially the Hellenistic widows. Remember, that was in verses 1 through 7. And that was usually typically the passage from which we historically have said that the concept of deacon has come from, okay? So let's look at verses 8 through 15. First of all, we're going to see his arrest. Uh, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say that we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and changed the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in council looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as a face of an angel. Okay, so let's kind of look at this together. First of all, let's talk about his ministry. So first of all, the first thing that Luke, when he records this historical event for us, is going to point out, he's going to point out the ministry of Stephen. So being filled with faith and power... Stephen did mighty works among the people. So I think this is interesting because normally we're used to reading that the apostles were the ones who did this kind of thing. What we're seeing here is is that we're seeing Stephen, who who is a Hellenistic Jew. Remember I told you what a Hellenistic Jew, that's a Jew from a Greek background. What do I mean by a Greek background? That's a Jew who has embraced the Greek culture. All right, he's not a he's not a not one who lives according to the Hebrew culture, but one who who lives according to the Greek culture. He's a Hellenist. So here he is. He's doing these mighty works of the Spirit, probably healings, other things, typically that the apostles were doing. So we see his ministry there. Now, I've always told you that when you are doing what God wants you to do. When you are doing things, you're always going to face opposition. Did you hear what I I've told you that before, okay? 
there is always going to be opposition. You need to, if you want to, write that down. If you're doing what God tells you to do, there is always going to be opposition, period. You need to understand that. If you're living for him, serving him, there is always going to be opposition. So again, opposition begins to raise its head here with Stephen. So Stephen was opposed by the Hellenistic Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen. So there obviously was in Jerusalem a synagogue. I'm sure there were many synagogues. And this synagogue was called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, those who attended this synagogue were Hellenistic Jews. Because when you look at that list there, verse 9, Cyrenian, Alexandrians from Cilicia and Asia, these are all areas that were once dominated by the Greeks during the Greek Empire. And the, and the, and the different, and the different kingdoms that arose out of Alexander's empire later. So these are Hellenistic Jews who are rising up against Stephen now, who are opposing Stephen. So let me stop for a moment. I think this is, this is an interesting point where you've got to con, got to consider it for a moment. Why do you think this particular group of people are opposed to Stephen? Why didn't they just say, the Hebrew Jewish, I mean, the Hebrew Jews, the Jews who were of a, of a Hebrew background, like, the, you know, the Jews, the same Jews who were opposing the apostles before, as well as those who opposed Jesus. Why this particular group? Why do you think this particular group is the ones who are opposed to Stephen? What do you think it is? Maybe you've never thought about this before. Okay, hometown crowd. Okay, anybody want to expand? That's, that's good, Bruce. Anybody else want to expand upon that? Why do you think that is? Okay, let me help you, okay? Who do you think that Stephen's ministry was primarily to? The, the Hellenistic Jews. Remember, he was selected to help settle the dispute that arose in the church because the Hellenist widows were saying they were being ignored. He is a Hellenist. Who are you naturally going to gravitate to? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Who are you naturally going to gravitate to? Yeah, your own people. You're only going to gravitate towards people who are like you. So here he is. He's doing this ministry, and this ministry probably was among the Hellenistic Jewish community there in Jerusalem. So it doesn't, it makes sense now that those who were attending a Hellenistic synagogue would be the ones who would be upset about, about Stephen. Cause he's probably making great inroads into that community with the gospel. Do you understand? He's probably having an impact and they're disputing with him. In fact, we're going to see that. We're going to see that they're going to be arguing with him about this. So we're not sure, here's the problem though, we're not sure what the synagogue of the freedmen was. Now that's one thing that we don't know. We know it's mentioned in the book of Acts. We have an idea, basically, that it was made up of Hellenistic Jews. But there really is no historic record of this group. Okay, so think about it, 2,000 years ago, there's no record that we know of, of this group. 
Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that this group did not exist. So do you understand what I'm saying? That doesn't mean that this group did not exist. So let me just take it for a moment. Let's say you are, you are into riding a Harley. You've, you've reached that point where your kids are gone off now, and you've decided that you're going to be young again, and you buy yourself a Harley, and you connect with a group of other people who are just like you, who want to drive a Harley, and you call yourselves, because maybe you're all Christians, you call yourselves the Holy Rollers. I don't know. And so you exist as this group. You even have your own leathers with Holy Roller on the back with a cross or something. Now, 2,000 years later, somebody finds a letter, well, or maybe a digital email that says something about, well, I'm heading out with the Holy Rollers. But the historians 2,000 years from now, as they're examining the history of Kerwinsville, they can't find any record of the Holy Rollers, okay? They can't find any. So it's mentioned one time. They're not even sure what that is. They maybe think it's, you know, guys who roll their yard in the spring. They got a big, big drum that they roll around, and, you know, maybe it's a group. They don't even know what the Holy Rollers are. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Maybe it's a roller skating group or something, you know, 2,000 years later. See, that's the situation we're in with this. That doesn't mean they didn't exist, because not everything is recorded, right? Not everything becomes part of record. But there's this group, a synagogue, a group of Jews, Hellenistic Jews meeting together, but we don't, we're not for sure what this was, okay? We just know it was a group, from the standpoint, a, a group of Jews gathering together in a synagogue. Now, these Jews were not able to address Stephen's wisdom as he spoke. Now, here's the problem. They're wanting to argue with him. They're wanting to prove that he's wrong, but they can't address his wisdom. He's obviously well-versed in the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. He's well-versed in the Torah, in the Scriptures. And so they can't argue with him. They can't get him to um, to trip him up to show that he's wrong or false. Do you understand? They have a hard time arguing with him. And so what happens is, and this happens even to this day, they decide to go a different route. If you can't argue a person, the, the natural next thing to do is to discredit a person. Have you noticed that? So true, we see it in the news all the time. If you don't like the person, you can't argue with his argument. Next thing you do is, is try to discredit him, okay? Because if you discredit him, then, that, then it doesn't really matter what he says. And so that's the same thing that's happening here. So they secretly plotted to have men testify that Stephen blasphemed God and Moses. So somehow they probably had a meeting and said, look, we can't deal with this guy. There's no way to answer him, so we're going to have to deal with him another way. And the only way we can do it is, is we need to have some folks say that they heard him say something, that he blasphemed. Now, isn't that what they did with Jesus? Okay? Same thing that they did with Jesus. Now, I want you to understand, their system is a little bit different than our system. In their day... You had to have two or three witnesses who agreed in their testimony. Remember, with Jesus, they had these witnesses, who, but they couldn't agree in their testimony. So they couldn't persecute, prosecute Jesus based upon what they said. They prosecuted, they killed him based upon what Jesus said, and that was, he answered, I am. Okay? In this situation, 
They're kind of coordinating it, I'm sure, a little bit better. We've got to have three guys say the same thing. Here's the line you've got to say. All right? So they're, they're plotting to have men testify that Stephen blasphemed God and Moses. So these jurors stir, stirred up the people to arrest Stephen and bring him to the council. Okay? They stirred up Stephen to arrest, excuse me, they stirred up the people to arrest Stephen and bring him to the council. It's called mob violence. Happens today. You ever get worked up because you saw something on the internet and you were convinced that it was true because you saw it on the internet? You ever been worked up? Okay. Only to find out later that it was not true. And I I don't understand why, because everything on the internet is true, isn't it? I mean, I saw a picture and a quote from Abraham Lincoln where he said, believe everything that's on the internet. Abe said that. You know? Here's the reality. What I want you to see is it's real easy to get people stirred up. And that's what you see happening in the Middle East even to this day, folks. Same culture. Getting emotionally worked up. They get him arrested because he's accused of blasphemy. And, and here's what happens with mob rules. When a mob rules, it doesn't really matter what the facts are. All that matters is, is you think something's going on. Okay? So these folks get all worked up, and they have Stephen arrested, and they bring him to the council. So the false witnesses claim that Stephen spoke against the temple and the law. And notice that when they make this claim, they bring Jesus into it. They're saying that he's proclaiming a message from Jesus, which he was. But they're saying the message from Jesus was is that he was going to destroy this place. Now, that's the same accusation that they leveled against Jesus, isn't it? Okay? Same accusation. But that's not what Jesus said. Okay? He was talking about himself, destroy this place, and in three days I'll raise it up. Okay? So... The false witnesses claim that Stephen spoke against the temple and the law. Now, this is what I think is amazing to me. So, they claim that Stephen said that Jesus would destroy the temple and its customs. I already mentioned that to you. But look, while they spoke, Stephen remained calm and appeared angelic. Stephen remained calm and appeared angelic. Now let me just stop for a moment. Do you think that's an amazing statement? That he looked like an angel? You think that's amazing? <clears throat> How many of you think it's amazing? Because obviously the coffee is slow this morning, so okay, just one per- How many of you say, I don't know and I don't care? Okay. Okay. All right. Well, here's why I want you to understand. This is why you need to understand. I think what's being revealed here to, is for you, so you and I can have an encouragement from this. What do you mean, George? Okay. Let's say, I'm just going to use you, Bruce. Okay. All right. Let's say, we're, instead of Stephen, we're talking about Bruce here. And let's say mob rules is the normal thing that happens in Kerwinsville. And a bunch of people are out to get Bruce, so they start a rumor that he did something that we would consider drastic. And so people come in. I mean, they literally are breaking down the doors. They come in here, drag him out, bring him to the court system. They're making all these accusations. And you know that the outcome, here's what I want you to understand. The outcome isn't that he's going to go to the pokey. He's not going to go to the county jail. He's going to be killed. 
you understand the outcome is your death. Now, Bruce, that's you. What are you thinking and feeling at the moment? How are you feeling? Okay, you would normally be scared. You'd be like, you'd be like, well, I didn't do it. You know, you'd be, you know, all the emotions with that. Do you understand? What Bruce is describing, that is normal, right? Okay, so but here you have Stephen. You know what the outcome is going to be because they're leveling the same accusations they leveled against Jesus and they killed him. You know that these guys have been opposing you. I think it's amazing that they look at him and he's got the face of an angel, that he's calm. What does that tell you? He wasn't worried about it. I'm here. Yeah, spirit control. Here's what I'm saying. Remember, we just looked at this in, in, in Matthew, didn't we? Don't worry. They'll bring you before councils. I, don't worry about what you need to say. I will what? Speak through you. Do you understand? What we're seeing here is the evidence of the Holy Spirit giving him the peace. Because if it was me, <laughs> you know, you know, it's like, you know, whatever, you know, because I'm thinking, you know, that's, you, do you understand what I'm saying? What we're seeing here is an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in this guy's life. I think that's what's so amazing to me because this, can I be honest with you, what you see in his response here, I think it's what you said earlier, Bruce, the normal response. This isn't normal. Would you say that his response here isn't normal? Okay, it's not normal. That's a testimony of the strength that God gives you. You know, I'm reminded, this has probably been, oh, maybe four years ago. Do you guys remember in the news when there was a group of Korean missionaries who were captured by the Taliban? Do you guys remember that? Maybe you didn't pay attention to the news. They were, they were a, a group of Korean missionaries, what they were doing in Afghanistan, well, they were doing their spreading the gospel, but they got captured and were being held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then eventually the Korean government worked it out for them to be released. Now, they talked to some of the folks who were held hostage. And some of them, I was completely amazed at what they said. They said, listen to what they said. This will blow your mind. They said in some ways it was almost better to be held hostage than now. Whoa, are you loony? Are you crazy? Why are you saying that? Here's what they said. I had a deeper sense of God's presence and peace that comes from the Holy Spirit than I do now. He was so real to me there. Whoa. Now, the average person or the person who's really not walking with Jesus will look at that and say, boy, that guy is crazy. Did he have some bad green tea or something? What's going on here? You know what I'm saying? But if you really understand that God shows up, you understand what the guy's saying. This is what's happening with Stephen, okay? Let's, let's continue on because we're going to see now Stephen's statement. Let's look at verses 1 through 16. He's going to make a statement here. So look, verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, this is Stephen speaking, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared 
to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years to a nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of the circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no substance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the first time Joseph was made known to his brothers, And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all the relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, and he and our fathers. And they carried, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought with a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Okay. So this is the fart. You're like, whoa, wait a minute now. I thought he's going to try to explain the situation that he's facing. It doesn't sound like he's getting there. He's kind of given them a history lesson. Doesn't it sound like that? Okay. In a way he is because he's going to make a point from it. So we're going to look at the first part of his statement today. And then next week we're going to see the continuation of the statement where he gets to the main point, okay? Where he gets to the main point. So let's, first of all, let's see what's going on here. In verse 1, the high priest asked Stephen if these accusations were true. Natural question. Uh, First of all, the high priest, do you think he knows that they're not true? Yeah, he probably knows because he's probably part of the deal that's going on against him, the plot. Because let's be honest, is the high priest... I mean, is the high priest impartial here? Now, he's already opposed. He's, he's sick of these guys coming up who are preaching the doctrine of Jesus' resurrection, okay? So now, here's where we see Stephen give his statement. And he goes back in history, really to the founding of the nation, okay? To the founding of the nation. So he goes all the way back to Abraham. So Stephen replies by giving them account of God's interaction with Israel. So he's going to give them an account of how God interacted with Israel. 
He tells them that God called Abraham when he lived in Mesopotamia. Now, does anybody know where Mesopotamia is? Have you looked at your Bible map lately? Anybody, anybody got a clue? Okay, here's where, if you want to think modern today, where he came from was called Ur of Chaldees. Now, where is that, George? Well, it's along the Euphrates River in what we know today as Iraq. Okay, and it's actually, Ur is actually very close to the portion of Iraq that is on the Persian Gulf. So when you think about where it is, it's down to where the Euphrates gets ready to go into the Persian Gulf. So it's all the way down there. So here's what I want you to see. This is where Abraham originally came from. He came from the people of the Chaldeans, and they worshipped a moon god, okay? The people of Ur worshipped a moon god. So at one time, Abraham worshipped a moon god. I think this is significant, and God called him out of that, okay? God called him out of that when he lived in Mesopotamia. So God called, it should be Abraham, to leave his family and go to a land. That's a typo there. He, it says Moses, but it should be Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his family and go to the land that he would show them. So what he ended up doing is, is that he went with his father and his, and his father's household and they traveled up the Euphrates, which would be called the Fertile Crescent, up to Haran, H-A-R-A-N. And I, where does, does anybody know where that is in your Bible history? Anybody have a clue? Okay, I'll help you. It's what we know today as Syria. Okay? In fact, where Haran is, is right now, where the great civil war is going on in Syria with ISIS and the Islamic folks and, you know, the Syrian government all fighting and the Russians and everything, and we're included in that. That's all happening up there, okay? So they followed the Fertile Crescent all the way up to Haran, and they settled there, and that's where he went until his father died. Abraham came to Canaan from Haran, when his father died. So what happened was, is when his father died, Abraham was then free to go. Now, why do you think he waited there until his father died? Why didn't he just say, hey, Dad, I'm off. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm gone. Why do you think he didn't do that? Yes, duty. They, back then, to be honest with you, it's a totally different culture than what we have right now. You basically did what Dad said until Dad died. Do you know what I'm saying? Now we have this concept like, when I'm on my own, I don't care what you say, Dad. I'm doing my own thing. Back then, it was a patriarchal system where everybody did what Dad said, okay? And so he probably didn't have the freedom to leave. But when Dad died, he could leave, and he did. And so what he did now is, remember, they're going up the Euphrates River, up to Haran. Over here is Canaan along the Mediterranean. He then, when his father dies, he goes down, following the Fertile Crescent, down into uh, what we know now as Canaan or Israel, okay? What was Canaan, which is Israel, all right? While God did not give Abraham the land, he did promise it before he had a son. So one of the amazing things was, 
is that here's Abraham. He's basically a foreigner. He goes into a foreign land. He's not from the people of Canaan. God didn't give him anything. Nothing. But he promised him all of that land. But he also promised him a son. And he did all of this before Isaac was even born. I think it's amazing. The only piece of land that Abraham ended up with was a burial plot. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was a place to bury his dead. That's all he ended up with. But God did not give Abraham the land. He did it. He did it. He did promise it before he had a son. So God foretold that Abraham's children would go into bondage 400 years before he freed them. So what he's saying is, I think this is interesting. He tells Abraham, your descendants are going to go into bondage for 400 years before I'll free them. So God's giving them a prophecy. He's telling them what is going to happen in the future, what his plan is. He's going to, they're going to be in bondage. So God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. All right, let's stop for a moment. We just went through Romans. Do you think Abraham had faith before circumcision or after? How was he justified? By his what? Being circumcised or by his what? By his faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? And has he exhibited faith to this point? You better believe it. How many of you would go on a journey like that, pick up your family and move, simply because you're trusting God for a promise that you're not, all humanly speaking, doesn't seem possible, right? All right, so God gave Abraham this, the, the covenant of circumcision really as a sign of the relationship, okay? So from Abraham, the patriarchs emerged. So from Abraham came Isaac, and from Isaac came Jacob, and from Jacob came what? Twelve sons who would become what? The twelve tribes of Israel. All right? So from Abraham, the patriarchs emerged. Now, here's where the prophecy, he shows that there's a prophecy being fulfilled. One of the sons was a guy by the name of Joseph. Okay? Joseph was sold into, sold into slavery to Egypt, which allowed his family later to join him there. So one of the sons was sold into Egypt, and this set in motion a circumstance of events that would allow Jacob and the family to end up in Egypt with him. Joseph was later carried to Shechem to be buried in the tomb of Abraham. Here's, here's an interesting thing. The tomb of Abraham is still there today. If you go to the Middle East, they can tell you where the tomb of Abraham is. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? So you're looking, you're talking about a place that has been there for four or 5,000 years, okay? And it's a holy place. You have to understand the tomb of holy, tomb of, it's a holy place, not just to Jews, but also to Muslims, okay? Not just to Jews, but also to Muslims. Because the Muslims claim Abraham as well. Do you understand? Because Abraham was the father of who? Ishmael, whom the Muslims claim, all right? Now, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop right there. Next week, we're going to continue on. He's going to continue with his history lesson. Now, you, you probably are thinking, wait a minute now. He's in front of the Jewish council. He's got the, the, the priest. The high priest is there, the elders. 
all of this, why is he giving them a history lesson? They would already know this, wouldn't they? Okay, here's what I want you to understand. It is the way that they formulated arguments back then. It was their way of bringing about an argument. Now, when I say an argument, I'm not talking about a fist fight. What I'm talking about is a way of testifying. It's getting to a main point. It's sort of like rather than walking through the door of the barn, you've got to run around it six or seven times before you go in. He's going to run around the barn a little bit to make a point. All right? And so next week we're going to see a little bit more barn running as he runs around, and then we're going to walk right through the door of what the point is. And when he makes the point, we're going to see that people are not happy. They're not happy with what he's saying. 